0: This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I'm Dave Moten. I'm the author of Mindframe, and I am the narrator of all of the chapters. And with me, as always, is Brent Van Tassel, who is my producer and partner in crime in what we do here with uh, Mindframe. You're about to listen to Chapter 4, and Chapter 4 is the introduction of one of our five primary characters. We've almost been introduced to all of them, and this time it is a character named Marcellus Ball. Marcellus is the uh, stage manager at uh, Fine Arts Theater, a live uh, stage theater, and uh, we start to see his story, and it is a, a tale of obsession about work, and it is a tale of uh, him longing for a member of the cast, but he doesn't quite think he's uh, good enough to, to chase her down, um, so we start to see his story, and you might be wondering what... Uh, uh, stage manager from the 1990s has to do with all the rest of it, and uh, that's the beauty of Mindframe. Um, if you want to know more, um, go to patreon.com backslash mindframepodcast where you can uh, become a member and get the sit-down episodes where we talk about some of the strangeness of Mindframe and try to tap into some of the mysteries of what may or may not be going on. And as always, we are a Podbelly original um the the wonderful people at podbelly produce and do all sorts of stuff behind the scenes um from design to everything um to help mindframe be what it is so go there for uh, educational content a great list of podcasts that's podbelly.com to to see what's going on there so without further ado i introduce you to the world of marcellus ball chapter 4 marcellus ball circa 1991 marcellus ball sat on the floor the earthen cold of a dense concrete slab wicked up into his legs and thighs. His eyes slowly adjusted to the dark of the space, the long hallways and tall ceilings. He hadn't bothered to turn on any lights since he was still alone and at peace. Patty had once again left the light on in the costume shop overnight, and that was plenty to see by. He loved his moments of dark silence in the bowels of the theater. Theater life was a storm of chaos when a show was running, a tactical event full of issued commands, orchestrated movements, and marks being hit. A show belonged to the entire troupe, but the serene downtimes in the theater's dark mornings belonged to Marcellus. He would sit on the ground and listen to music with his back against the brick wall. The cool and the darkness, and soon his new headphones, would be like a sensory deprivation tank. The isolation was like floating in deep space. Marcellus dug into a Circuit City shopping bag made of a thick plastic that almost stood up on its own. It spoke of quality and expensive contents, the bag. The store was a new chain of megastores that just opened near his apartment. He was impressed with the variety of electronics it held, though he was put off in equal measure by overly aggressive salespeople trying to land a commission. His hand dug into the bag and found the receipt first, which he'd save in case of a defect. He then pulled out the main prize, a new Sony Discman. His old one burned out during dress rehearsals a week ago, and with a hectic schedule from being in the throes of Tech Week, he had no time to replace it until this morning. The box was surprisingly small and covered with polyglot technical information he barely understood. It was sealed with small discs of invisible tape that he slit loose with the blade of his multi-tool. He slid the CD player out, but it was encased in a safety cocoon made of styrofoam and plastic. Marcellus undid the packing around the player, discarded a heap of twist ties, molded plastic, and form-pressed foam. He inserted two gold Sony brand batteries, and the liquid crystal display came to life. It was backlit, unlike his previous one, which was a great feature for dark theater spaces. The light was the pale blue of a cough drop, filled with tiny symbols that he'd need to read the manual to understand, things that meant repeat or battery life or whatever. The headphones were folded up in there, small, strange things. They were supposed to be a typical harness that went over the head, but it folded in on itself to save space. And instead of speakers that went over the ears, they were tiny things meant to go inside. He couldn't imagine that would be good for his long time hearing. He pulled his other purchase from the bag, A sealed jewel case with a hologram on the front, reflecting Prince and two beautiful women draped in a long string of pearls. He peeled the plastic seal off of the CD, inserted the disc in the machine, hit random, and powered it on. The machine selected track 10. There was a whir of gears and a slight jump in the disc man as the device activated. The music swelled. It was a slow thing with a jazzy guitar, Prince talking about the struggles to make money, dealing with snakes and users and how ultimately money don't matter as much as the soul good message good song quite a departure from the likes of darling nikki he set the disc man on the ground surprised that it didn't skip or jump but this one had some kind of crazy onboard memory called esp electric skip protection so when the device moved the laser still skipped but the memory kept playing for 3 seconds of recorded music until the device caught up with the track and synced again. Just a few years ago, CD players cost a fortune, and now he could afford to keep one in his backpack. And unlike him, this device had ESP. How long would it be before the CD players would record more than three seconds for skip protection? Why couldn't it record an entire album, and you wouldn't need to have the disc spin at all? The world was changing at a dizzying pace. His friend Miguel even downloaded dirty pictures on his Amiga by accessing some Usenet every night on his computer. Right now, though, technology was letting Prince sing a song in Marcellus's headphones. He was transcendently happy for just a few minutes, surrounded by the dark of space and the grooves of a maestro. Marcellus was one of four people with keys to the Kuiper Theater, always the first one on scene every morning, and he knew this moment of peace was all he'd get for the next 12 hours. It was opening night. Soon the text would start to trickle in one by one to make sure props were set, costumes cleaned and pressed, lights refocused based on director's notes from last night's final dress rehearsal. The actors, of course, would pour in last, trying to see who could come in the latest without being actually late, all still reeling from a night of brutal rehearsing and even more brutal drinking. The troupe wasn't normally taken to binge drinking, but this production was heavy and the scenes took their emotional toll on all of them, so as a result they seemed especially susceptible to Bacchanalia. The songs floated by on the Walkman, and Marcellus rode atop them, transcendent, a man in a chamber. But then, through the guitar licks, he heard the back door that he had unlocked swing open and shut. He heard the chatter of his two assistants, Irwin and Barca, as their footfalls filled the deep echoing silence of the place. Marcellus was sitting in the black box theater, back behind the main stage, and Irwin and Barca both came into the small square space, hitting the massive light switch to bring some illumination. "'Jesus!' Irwin cried, and held his hand to his peacoat's breast in surprise. "'Marcellus Ball, sit in the dark and be creepy, why don't you?' "'Ladies and gentlemen, I present you Count Blackula,' said Barca. "'New Prince,' Marcellus said by way of explanation. "'New Disc Man," he added." powering down his CD player, locking it so it wouldn't come on or pop open, and putting it in his tattered black backpack. The backpack was more a totem than a means to carry things. He bought it his freshman year, and it never left his side through all of school or now here at the Kuiper. At one point, it was adorned with tiny buttons or sewn-on patches he'd buy from indie music shops showing off his favorite bands, but adulthood made him get rid of most of that. Now there was only an oversized Darth Vader button he'd had since he was a child and the pin of the theater club he co-founded at school. It was called quick change, a bad pun, but effective. The school's theater was mired in politics among the professors. So no students were ever able to run their own production. He and his friend Desi started a club on their own to get this to change. They got their own funding from student government sources and they changed the way the theater worked. They were running their own productions. Marcellus always at the director's helm or running things from the booth. The pin was designed by the club advisor. It was a triangle bisected by a capital Q at the top. Quick change still existed, still did shows. And Marcellus wore the pin on his backpack, often the lapel of a jacket with pride. He stood up and brushed dust from his pants, adding to his mental to-do list that someone needed to sweep the black box. There were no productions back here at the moment, but dirt was getting tossed around during the troops rehearsal for new shows that they did back here since the main stage was still in the launching of its run of Hamlet. Tell me one of you brought coffee, Marcellus said. Irwin tossed him a brown bag of coffee, tightly packed and fragrant. A small cellophane window showed glossy and dark whole beans and the sticker above it said Heart Attack Roast, Extra Bold. I don't recognize the package. Supreme Bean answered Barca. Just opened two blocks up past Josie's, Irwin added. Supposed to get a Starbucks soon, they keep saying, Marcellus said. Yeah, right. Let's grind it up. Dale's gonna be pissed you didn't get Folgers, Marcellus said. Yeah, well, he'll be the only one, Barker replied, his Spanish accent especially thick today. Irwin rubbed Barca in the center of his back, three slow circles, his fingertips slow to leave the man's coat, wanting to linger as if in bed on a Sunday morning. Irwin said... I'm going to go sort out the drawer. There was a mess at the register last night, and that was only the dress. Tonight it'll be especially busy up there. Call me when you get the coffee brewed. It surprised Marcellus just then, that brief caress. Erwin and Barca's bodies spoke to each other, sung in that old song of new love. The lingering of a finger, the slowing glance of an eye, a lip upturned in a joy that was only shared with the other, A lip recently full of kisses and secrets spilled on a lover's pillow. Erwin grabbed a walkie-talkie, checked the battery, and exited the black box, heading up the long hall that ran alongside the theater to the lobby in the box office. Barca grabbed a walkie-talkie, and then finally Marcellus clipped his own walkie on the belt of his army pants, which is what Erwin and Barca called his BDUs. Marcellus made sure his walkie was turned off and said, You and Erwin seem awfully friendly today. Well, you know, as first dates go, Barca said, letting the sentence hang, ripe with implication. You are so in love, Marcellus said. I am not, Barca decried as he pulled open the massive stage doors that led from the black box to the theater's shop. Well, I am if he is. Marcellus was happy for them, though he felt that their new relationship summoned up a light of pure joy, which made Marcellus' life all the darker down there in the shadows. Both of his assistants had been playing Will He or Won't He for the past two productions, and last night they had actually gone to the cast party on a date. Unlike his assistants, Marcellus wasn't gay, but their happiness put a pall on his mood. In the place where his two friends found a fond future, he was only reminded of an empty place. They had the ambrosia of budding new love. He had a boiled egg. Nothing tragic. There was no great loss in Marcellus's life. He was merely lonely due to long hours at the theater every day and night. And since there weren't any eligible straight actors in the troupe at the moment, and all the techs worked for him, he never had a chance to meet anyone. Who all went, Marcellus asked of the party. Oh, everyone. Well, not quite everyone. For example, I noticed that one Miss Arnez's arm was absent one suitor. She asked about you. Stop it. She's an old friend is all. Plus, she has a boyfriend, Marcellus said. Not as of last night, it turns out. Barca paused, locked eyes with Marcellus. She needed a shoulder to cry on, a straight one, and she asked about you. Barca wiggled his eyebrows up and down several times in rapid succession. The coffee grinder purred to life in Barca's hands, and the air suddenly smelled wonderful, coffee outranking paint and sawdust. Marcellus shook his head and grabbed his clipboard to start adding things to the to-do list. Sweep and dust black box. Arlie. Sort out ticket booth. Mandy. Shop. Arlie. Folgers. Drywall screws. Cheap brushes. Cheap champagne. The back doors opened and closed again as some other tech made his or her way to work this morning, and the smell of rain snuck in. Intrigued by the scent, Marcellus opened a side door to the set shop, A door made Lilliputian in scale compared to the loading doors and stage doors that filled the huge room full of power tools and lumber. Rain fell on the dusty sidewalk that ran along the busy Echo Street promenade, leaving little kiss marks one by one until a steady stream evened out the surface of the concrete. The coffee, the lumber from the shop, the rain, it was maybe the best thing Marcellus had ever smelled. He loved this place. Once the theater on Echo Street opened, it rehabilitated the nightlife around itself. The theater, practically as old as the city itself, was renovated 10 years ago. It started as a stage theater in the early 1900s, switched to film, fell from grace as downtown collapsed around a weak economy, and found a faint pulse in showing dirty movies to perverts in the afternoon. But with the recent infusion of money and talent, the theater closed the loop and went back to its roots. Now it was one of the best live theaters in the state, if not the nation. They performed plays from the mundane to the avant-garde, ancient classics and new pieces. Echo Street kept a solid troupe of regular players on salary thanks to the constant endowment of the theater's wealthy owner, Katsumi Oshiro. It never made any money, but she never cared. The presence of the theater on Echo Street transformed the neighborhood from empty storefronts Failing furniture stores, dirty bookstores, and sleaze bars, to a hub of hip nightlife, trendy eateries, and coffee houses and pubs to let people refuel before their time at the theater. Marcellus watched the dim, stormy November morning as the coffee gurgled and brewed. The sky was a study of shades of gray. He readied himself for another morning on Echo Street, another hectic opening night performance. Another day as head stage manager for the Kuiper Theatre. Opening night. The booth, like everything in a theatre, was dimly lit. It was superstition, Marcellus realized one day. Just like one could not mention the Scottish play by name, whistle, or say good luck, one also didn't want much light on in a theatre. This was a place of tricks of light and illusion. A fourth wall was a delicate thing easily broken by the crush of the real world just on the other side of the veil. So, rooms stayed in darkness, and people wore black, even when they didn't have to. In the booth, the light board itself was illuminated, so the operator didn't mistake one particular button or fader for another, and that was all the light Marcellus allowed in there. The room next to the light booth, separated by a door frame with no door, was the sound booth. The soundboard didn't light up, so the sound booth was lit by a small lamp with a couple of red gels, technically called medium bastard amber, which is why Marcellus chose that particular color, taped to the lampshade to keep the room dim. The eyes adjusted to the darkness, and the superstitions satisfied. Marcellus, Erwin, the lighting operator, and Barca, the sound operator, were the only ones in the booth, but from here, the entire production succeeded or failed. Every single person on the cast and crew knew their jobs, were trained and experienced, but they saw only their individual task, their own lines, their next cue. A marvelous experience was about to unfold. A production of live theater, of Shakespeare's masterpiece, and everyone involved, including the audience, was just a bee in the hive of a play. The audience need only observe. The actors need only act. The light board operator, fade the lights up or down, The stagehands moved the set pieces, all on cue. And only Marcellus was tasked with seeing the whole thing through. He minded the cues from on high, his steady eyes watching everything, his calm voice letting everyone know exactly what was happening and when it should happen. Marcellus sat on his tall stool and looked down over the audience through the blackened glass. One thousand souls sat below, all ready to participate in the theater. They were dressed well. Couples mostly, arms finding arms on seat rests and marrying. The house lights were at three-fourths, so the red-curtained walls glowed orange. A healthy, cave-like feeling. The stage was curtained, so the set was yet to be revealed. Music filled the theater as people chatted quietly and fiddled with programs. The production was four songs away from the first light cue. It was all big band music. This was a hackneyed production of Hamlet set in some contrived and generic European nation on the eve of something blandly similar to World War II. Norway's soldiers wore things like SS uniforms and Denmark wore a mashup of World War I slash World War II British slash American uniforms. The director owned the theater and was typically brilliant. This time, Marcellus thought, She was being a nitwit with an awful concept. But Marcellus did his job, which was to make the production exactly like the director wanted it, every single night and twice on Sundays, for however long she decided to let this production run. And she could be fickle about that. Marcellus's book sat open on the ancient black metal music stand in front of him. There was a small light clipped to it, but he left it off, fine with the glow of the lighting board and computer monitor. The bulk of his book was the actual script of the play, and he would read through it live time as the actors said their lines. In the margins were notes, highlighted in different colors. Each note was a cue he had to call into the headset for lights, for sound, for props to be moved out, for an actor to enter, and each cue had a series of pre-cues, the warnings and the ready cues before the actual event itself. Theater was a strange thing. Really, theater had already started for the evening, the show well underway, most of the elements moving and doing their thing. The audience was unaware of this, unaware of their own participation in the show, unaware of the book, of the cues, of the timing, but their parking, walking through the light rain to the lobby, getting a program, finding their seats in the dimness, chatting, and waiting for the curtain to rise and house lights to dim, all of it was theater. It didn't just start when the actors first said something. Right now, Marcellus was on page negative one of the book, a series of song titles, and the first thing he had to call was now happening as a song faded silent and the next started up. Bless you for the good that's in you by Peggy Lee and Mel Torme. It was probably released a decade after World War II, but this production was only sort of World War II, so Marcellus assumed the anachronism was fine. Seven minutes, Barca said from the sound booth to Marcellus. Thank you, Seven, Marcellus said back. He powered on his headset and said, All stations check. Lightboard? Present, Erwin said, both in the headset and into Marcellus' open ear. Spot one? Check, Mandy said, over headset from the first spotlight suspended over the audience's head. Spot two? Yo, said Arlie from the second spotlight back behind the audience. Soundboard? Rock and roll. Prop master? Willing, able, and propped. And on Marcellus went. Everyone called in, and finally Casey announced that the actors were ready from backstage. Two songs left. Stand by Light Q1, Marcellus said. Standing by, Irwin replied. This is where I get nervous. Always two songs out, Irwin whispered, covering up his microphone to say it only to Marcellus. I think you're just dreading bad for me, he whispered back. The final song before the curtain rose was called It's Bad For Me by Gertrude Lawrence. Irwin and Marcellus hated it and mocked it every night of dress rehearsal. It sounded, according to Irwin, as if a freight train ran over a jazz band that was sitting on top of a crate of canaries with laryngitis. Irwin laughed quickly and then found focus, fingers on the buttons, face awash from the light of the board. Marcellus tied his dreads into a ponytail and said, Ready, light Q1, standby, light Q2. Light Q1 ready, light Q2 standing. The song passed, and halfway through Bad for Me, an explosion of annotations in the book made Marcellus start his job in earnest. He called out four standbys, called Light Q1, which had the house lights slowly fade to black, as the audience played their parts and fell silent as a jilted lover. The curtains lift, Light Q2, which brought the lights up on the castle walls at Elsinore, and then Hamlet had started. Time compressed and stretched in odd ways as attention was focused and relaxed, contracting and expanding like waves on a war-torn sea. Actors came, scenes went, cues ticked by on pace and Marcellus talked everyone through. In Act 3, a light cue failed to light. Marcellus waited two seconds and saw the computer had frozen. The house and stage sat in darkness, and those seconds slowed to hours and Marcellus pondered what to do, who to call, how the show could proceed without breaking the fourth wall. He jumped over and manually faded the lights to about where the computer would have put them, and the actors came out none the wiser. Marcellus checked his book, a fairly long scene, 15 minutes before the next light cue. He told Erwin to reboot the computer since it was unresponsive. The computer was a brand new feature just installed for this production, Nobody was used to computerized lightboards, and its failing was virgin territory. The system reboot took about ten minutes. Irwin scrolled through the cues and got to light Q20, ready to boot, catching up with the play itself. I'll have grounds more relative than this. The play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king, Hamlet said, slinging his M1 Garand rifle on his costume shoulder and heading off stage right. Irwin told the computer to start Q20, and it did. Lights faded to black, and then daytime lighting came up on the main castle, right on track. Fuck me, Marcellus and Irwin said in unison. All good? Barca stood in the doorway of the sound booth, holding his headset in one hand because the cord wouldn't reach all the way out there. We're on track, Marcellus said, resuming his seat and aligning himself with the book based on the lines that Guildenstern just said to the king, and the play continued pace. Marcellus realized he'd been calling all the cues to the stagehands and prop masters while off book, but he was doing so unconsciously and accurately. That's why he had this job. Eventually, standing amidst the final scene's tragic bloodbath, Fortinbras said, for his passage, the soldiers' music and the rite of war speak loudly for him. Take up the bodies. Such a sight as this becomes the field, but here shows much amiss. Go, bid the soldiers shoot, There was a grand exit, and a peal of ordinance was shot off after Marcellus called the final sound cue. Marcellus announced the fade to black, and then the cue that took the house lights back to half as the audience clapped, rather generously, Marcellus felt, considering the quality of the production, and the cast took a bow. The majors got their own bows, Hamlet, Claudius, and the like. Marcellus paused to watch Ophelia take her bow. If Arnez was sad from her breakup, she didn't show it on stage. Maybe she used it to bring about the uttered tragedy that was Ophelia. Her breasts looked much larger than normal in the funeral gown she was still wearing, her face still pale from makeup of the grave. Lesser actors bowed in twos. Then Marcellus made the final calls. The curtain fell, the house lights came to full, and everyone held their positions. The audience filtered out, most of them asking questions or talking trash about the concept for the production. Marcellus agreed but he had performed his job without a hitch. Marcellus announced the all-clear and said he was going off headset, which in turn let everyone else go off as well. Tonight, as with every night, all cues were lined up, all marks hit, and all parts came off to be a wonderful whole. He just wished it was a better whole, a production he actually believed in. The Lariat was closing. Marcellus had just helped ensure that. Even if he felt sleazy about it. Another success. Another night at the Kuiper Theater came and went. Another troop was tuned to the fine marching orders. And Arnez was single and sad. So begins the tale of Marcellus Ball as we get further into the various characters of Mindframe and wonder how they all tie together. And as I uh, regularly say, if you want to know more about how it all ties together, uh, please consider becoming a member of Patreon. If you go to patreon.com backslash Mindframe podcast, uh, you can elect to join at the level that gives you access to the sit downs where myself, Zach Smith and uh, Brent all get together and talk about uh, the events of this Chapter. So as we just finished chapter four, you would go into Patreon and you would find the sit down for chapter four and listen to us talk. They're really fun. I, uh, I really enjoy recording those sessions. They're really fun. Um, we have a lot of laughs and we, we spout some theories out and it's, it's just a good time as far as I'm concerned. Um, But go to mindframepodcast.com to take a look at our merchandise and to take a look at books. Uh, You can check out my book 181 Pine and you can check out Zach's uh, uh, three books and his collection of short stories. They're all for sale on the main website. we are part of the Podbelly uh, network and if you go to podbelly.com you can find other podcasts such as Art and Jacob do America and Changing Hearts and Minds and of course the Sofa King podcast which is a podcast that myself uh, Brent Van Tassel and Brad Taylor have been doing for several years uh, we recently hit episode 500 it is not safe for work And it is not safe for the faint of heart, but it is a good time. It's educational and it's funny. So check out Sophie King podcast if you're so inclined. If you really want to help us out, you can like, join, share and love on our social media. And we have various uh, different social media groups So on Facebook. We have uh, Mindframe Podcast on Facebook. You'll be able to find us. And within uh, Facebook, there is also a Facebook group, which is the Mindframe Podcast group. And that's where listeners uh, uh, get together and talk and share ideas and post uh, memes and have fun and so forth. So um, the official uh Facebook is one thing, and the group is sort of where to go to, to hang out. On Instagram, we are the MindFrame Podcast. On Twitter, it's the MindFrame Pod, and on Reddit, it is r slash MindFrame Podcast. So, again, like, join, share. It really makes a big deal uh, that social media impact is really hard to have, and the power, as Captain Planet would say, the power is yours. Um, anyway, we hope you enjoyed this episode, and as always, remember. The Lariat is closing.